0: Welcome to the
1: Keep It Quirky podcast. I'm your host, Katie Quinn, and this is the podcast where I talk with creatives and entrepreneurs about everything from food to travel and the discipline and drive to create. Passion begets passion, so come on with me and let's do this. Today's guest, Kristen Miglore, has authored a just-released cookbook called Genius Desserts, so it only makes sense that today's episode is sponsored by Malai Ice Cream. You may think that summer is ending, but it's still ice cream season in New York, how about flavors like rose with cinnamon roasted almonds, masala chai, and mango and cream? Malai Ice Cream is a South Asian-inspired spice forward ice cream company in New York City that's building out its first brick and mortar store in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn. They don't want to have you wait, so they're popping up in their own store. It's open Monday through Friday, 5 30 to 9 30, and Saturday and Sunday, noon to 10. When you grab a scoop, mention this podcast and get 10% off your order. The Malai pop-up is at 268 Smith Street in Cobble Hill and will be going on through the rest of 2018 until its grand opening next year. Hours and flavors will be announced on their Instagram at Malai underscore ice cream. That's M-A-L-A-I underscore ice cream. If you're an ice cream person, then you're probably into desserts in general, as am I. In which case, I am very excited for you to listen to today's episode. Kristen Maglore is the author of Genius Desserts. It's the follow-up to her first cookbook, the IACP award-winning New York Times best-selling cookbook, Genius Recipes. Both of those cookbooks spring out of Kristen's beloved column on Food 52. Kristen is also the creative director of Food 52. If you're not familiar with Food 52, it is a popular food website. They also sell these incredible curated items. To be candid, it is one of my favorites. Kristen is a super smart, kind person. In this episode, she shares her path, her passion, and its evolution with all of us. You know, when I was trying to think of how best to set up this interview with Kristen, I decided to ask Amanda Hesser and Meryl Stubbs, the two co-founders of Food52. Kristen has been with them since the very beginning as Food52's first employee nearly a decade ago. Since then, these women and their company have been at the front of a food tech and e-commerce business that's not only successful but groundbreaking in a lot of ways. So here's Amanda and Meryl talking about first meeting Kristen. Amanda Hesser, Meryl Stubbs. Hello. Hi. Hello. Uh, and welcome to the Keep It Quirky podcast. I would love just a few words from you guys about the incredible asset that you have in Kristen as a part of Food 52.
0: The fabulous glorious as we call her. Ah, <laughs> oh, Kristen. She arrived one day. In it's a like, yellow dress uh, on a cloud, <laughs> <laughs> and it was—it literally was like she was a, 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 just this, almost untouchable seeming ethereal creature who also was like super talented and whip smart. The thing that I think st- struck us was that I'm not sure Kristen said more than five words for the first month because she's so quiet because she's you think that she's just shy but she's actually just very quietly watching everything and And, and pulling it in and yes and interpreting and um (laughs) she did laugh at our jokes though well that's why we hired her obviously (laughs) but we didn't know we didn't hire her as a writer we hired her really to help us in the kitchen yeah you know because we were running these recipe contests and doing all this styling and we just needed another set of hands and then also to you know get posts up on the website and then at some point she we, <laughs> I think we, were, we threw a post her way because we were like hey you write this because yes. we were like too busy and it was just this thing of beauty yeah it was just stunning she has this incredible natural ability as a writer to pull you in to any subject I think yeah but especially anything revolving around the kitchen yeah i mean she's got such wit and it's this kind of it sneaks up on you Mm -hmm. which is very much the way she is in person too she has this extremely placid demeanor and then she all of a sudden she's got these like zingers that come out (laughs) and you just like so she
1: makes you laugh just as much as you make her laugh maybe more (laughs) to be (laughs) fair (laughs) Amanda and Meryl, or a m as they sometimes go by, are two women who I look up to perhaps more than any of the other many rock star female entrepreneurs I've ever met. Their praise for Kristen is big and so warranted. And now that you've heard Amanda and Meryl talk a bit, it'll make all the more sense when you hear Kristen talking about them later in the interview. So without further delay, here's Kristen.
2: Kristen... Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank
1: you for coming on. I could not be more excited. And I'm so excited to be interviewing you now because your book, Genius Desserts, just came out. Like like minutes ago. Like just. (laughs) I would like to begin by asking you to read a little (laughs) excerpt. Sure. Are you game? Sure. This bit about the eggshells. Okay.
2: Okay. Um, genius tip cleaner, cracking eggshells cooks debate, whether cracking eggs on a flat surface or the rim of a bowl leads to a cleaner break and fewer shell fragments. I cracked a heck of a lot of eggs while I was testing the recipes for this book. And this is what I learned one, regardless of surface, you must crack with conviction. Timid taps are what cause the shell to shatter into tiny pieces. Two, there's no such thing as a no shell guarantee. So it really is safest to crack your eggs into a separate bowl first before dumping them into your batter. Three, here are two easy ways to retrieve errant shell bits. One, wet a finger and dive in with that, or scoop them out with half the eggshell itself. As Rachel Kong, who wrote Lucky Peach is All About Eggs, told me, for some reason the shell bit just swims into the other eggshell.
1: <laughs> Thank you for reading that. <laughs> sure. The reason I wanted to begin with this with a little story time I do feel
2: like it's kindergarten story time. I know.
1: I don't begin every podcast (laughs) episode this way. But the reason I wanted to do that is because it showcases the little tips that are so useful for anyone in the kitchen that this cookbook, Genius Desserts, and Genius Recipes, your previous book, are just chock full of. So that's one reason. The second reason is because your writing style is such that it's like talking to a buddy, Who's like? Oh man! Did you hear this thing about the crack and eggshells? Because let me tell you, the way you write is is so relatable. Genius desserts. Your second cookbook. What was this like for you?
2: <laughs> I would like to think that it was. I, I definitely learned a lot from the first cookbook. Um, that I mean, you can't not. You you have these lessons in your head that like, you think, okay, if I had a little more time next time, or if I, um, you know, just did this thing in this order instead, then the whole process would go more smoothly because it does take like two years to write a book like this. I mean, that is a long time. Yeah. So if you make some silly mistake in the early um, stages of it, you can be living with that mistake for two years. So after one book is under your belt, the second one definitely goes more smoothly. So
1: do you feel like now that the second book is done, it's written, it's out there, are you happy with the way you implemented lessons from the first book?
2: Yeah, I, I think so. And of course, I learned even, even more, more. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> it's a never ending. Yeah, so
2: many new things, especially, you know, a new subject matter brings its own foibles. Um, but definitely, you know, when I was planning this book, luckily, I had a little bit more time to do the research and testing and and kind of plotting of the book. And I really, really wanted to take advantage of that time and just kind of go crazy and like ask our community at Food 52 and ask every baker I knew, professional and home bakers who just love baking all the time and sharing with friends. Um, You know, I read cookbooks like crazy. I ordered (laughs) dozens of 99 cent used cookbooks off of Amazon, you know, any lead that I heard, you know, even if it, whether it was a recipe or even if it was just like a person or a particular book from the eighties that was really influential, I just gathered as much as I could. I basically spent every Saturday for, I don't know, nine, 10 months testing recipes. And I figured I had this time and the rest of the book would just be so much easier if I found just the coolest recipes and the best stories um and i realized i would only do that if i really put in the time to asking as many people as i could and trying as many things as i could
1: it's a bit of an overwhelming task but you bring up an interesting point of the recipe and the story behind the recipe and the importance of both of those in order to make like the final list for the book, right? How would you weigh the importance and the priority between those
2: two things? Oh, it was very mathematical. No, it was not. <laughs> I was like, whoa, no. really? Um, there are so many different balancing factors. There's, you know, these ultra iconic recipes that just couldn't not be in the book that have just, you know, everyone talks about them. They've, um, you know, there were certain people I knew had to be in here who were just super influential. Um, So there's that whole set. But then I, of course, really wanted it to be open to new discoveries and things that hadn't been published everywhere too. So every single recipe was sort of this balancing act. And then of course, there's the normal cookbook considerations of you can't have 20 chocolate cakes. There are three and they're all very different and they all needed to be in there. But You know, you have to, at some point, cut it off and and try to have a good diversity of different types of things. Both the outcome and also, you know, this is something you can whip up in 10 minutes. This is something that you want to devote an afternoon to.
1: So you had desserts in the first Genius Cookbook Mm -hmm. and Genius Recipes. What was the difference for you in including the desserts in Genius Recipes versus an entire cookbook devoted to the dessert recipes? Did that change the way you wrote?
2: I did have to really dig deep to not just keep repeating the same kinds of adjectives over and over like fudgy crispy yes buttery crumbly all of the best adjectives great adjectives (laughs) some of the best but um you know that's where the stories came in I think um that's where you can really start to differentiate when you have a chapter with 25 different cookies and brownies and things, really digging into what made this one special and also what will make it special when you make it Mm -hmm. and how it fits into your life and how it will change what you think about when you're making brownies or whatever the thing is. So you have
1: the reader top of mind as you're writing this cookbook.
2: Totally. And I hope that they're as excited by some of these stories as I am. But of course, in the end, it needs to be a great recipe and it needs to work for them and it needs to fit into their life. So all of those things were constantly swirling in my mind.
1: I have the cookbook here. I'm touching it with my (laughs) hand and it is it is sexy. Uh, But you are Kristen (laughs) from Food 52 and you have such an interesting story and your path I really want to dig into. So so we started with kind of the present, the exciting stuff going on with you right now as creative director of Food 52 This cookbook is only one aspect of the many things that you do. But so let's rewind before you were where you are now. Duh. (laughs) (laughs) And I would like to start with the trajectory that I believe you started on when you first went to school. And that was that of economics? Mm -hmm. Okay, so what did you think that you would end up doing with your life?
2: (laughs) What was I thinking? (laughs) (laughs) What the heck were you thinking? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, no. It. Well, I think a lot of people when they're 18 and picking out their college major don't know what is going on and what they will want to do for the rest of their life. I'm sure lots of people have run into that. And I went to a big school that didn't have super specific or super, to be honest, practical majors. Economics was one of the more practical, um, but, you know, it just seemed like a kind of decent catch-all. And taking economics classes, I actually really liked, but I liked the ones that were about history and, mm. um, and stories, frankly. Like the history of our, you know, Federal Reserve policy and what that did to our country. Those were the ones that were really interesting to me. I did not like accounting and income taxation and all the really practical ones. Okay. And then, of course, when I got out into the world, those are the ones that usually you're doing.
1: Right. Those are the job opportunities. For
2: a paycheck. Yeah.
1: Right. Oh, the paycheck. Yeah. Okay. So at what point did you realize, I'm going to need to pivot?
2: (laughs) Pretty quickly. I it's such a rude awakening sometimes when you get into that first job and you really just don't know what it's like to sit eight, nine hours in a cubicle and the things that you'll be doing. Pretty quickly, I started wondering, is this normal to be this bored and to be this unengaged and uninterested in what I'm doing? You know, And I, I, I gave it a try. I, I worked at it you know, I spent two years in one job and then I tried another job for another year, just really trying to figure out, okay, will this get better as I, you know, get more into it? But I just was thinking about food constantly.
1: Really? Okay, so so the interest in food was there. It was becoming very strong. Okay. And when did it start? Like when was the first nugget of it? Probably
2: in college was when I started getting really into like reading cookbooks and cooking for myself. I mean, it was really the first time that I was on my own Needing to feed myself and having agency in that. Yeah. Um, So it was just this kind of like brewing thing. And then as I had lots and lots of time on my hands in my cubicle watching my analyses process, (laughs) I would just – my mind would wander and I would think about what was in my fridge and what I could make for dinner and, you know, what food adventures I could go on over the weekend. And it just became this clamor that I couldn't really ignore after a while.
1: And that's when you looked into NYU.
2: Well, yeah, that basically, although I didn't know I was looking into it at the time. Oh, really? Because I was just so frustrated one day. um, I knew I wanted to do something in food. I thought food writing sounded very appealing and I had a writing and editing minor, but I just kept applying to Bon Appetit when they were still in LA, um, because I was in California at the time, I just kept sending them applications to what I thought were entry-level positions, and of course, I never got anywhere. So I started dabbling. I took a little food writing class in LA, and then one day, in frustration, I Googled food studies, because I knew I didn't wanna work as a chef in a restaurant, but I didn't know any other way to get a foot in the door, and so I thought maybe there's a program in grad school out there called food studies or similar, and lo and behold, Food Studies is a graduate program at NYU. Wow. So
1: you kind of just like threw a dart <laughs> into the open space and it kind of landed on the bullseye.
2: Yeah. I imagined it and it existed. And, it and existed. I was like, okay, well, this is too perfect not to take seriously.
1: Yeah. Wow. Okay. And then was it just like a whirlwind after that? You applied, you got in, and then... Basically,
2: yeah. I think actually I applied while I was still at the first job that was really, really soul-sucking. And so then I decided, okay, I'll – I couldn't decide if I was ready to make the leap yet, so I tried the the next job for another year. Okay, yeah, you, year. you
1: wanted to give it a solid go yeah. to this economics situation. Yeah,
2: before I told everyone, by I'm done with economics, I'm going to study food. Yeah. Which some people, like my parents, were very supportive of, and they they got it because they really love – food and they they knew that I wasn't happy but then other people like my bosses at my econ jobs were like huh
1: are you crazy town
2: (laughs) (laughs) what is this yeah I mean that (laughs) takes courage I guess or just or just like feeling like you have no other option feeling like you would rather do anything than be bored for the next several decades of your career
1: so your parents you mentioned that they're into food um what was what, what was growing up in California with foodie parents would you call them foodies
2: yeah but only in retrospect i like it was always a part of our lives but i never thought much of it it just was there i kind of didn't know any different um you know my parents both were big cooks very different styles of cooks my mom is very by the recipe and my dad is very like ignore every recipe but weirdly i was an extremely picky eater so i didn't Totally appreciate this at the time, but it was just kind of, I think, soaking in and waiting to explode in me once (laughs) I got over the picky eating thing. (laughs) Yes. When did you get over the picky eating thing? Uh, It was gradual, but then it really sped up, I think, around college when I started cooking food for myself and being able to take, you know, take a drive or a bus ride or something to go to a restaurant. I started trying everything
1: yeah what were your particularly despised foods that you, know, you can the f- remember.
2: the funny thing is and I think this is actually really true of a lot of people who work at food 52 and a lot of people who are kind of become food lovers and really avid home cooks kind of later in life is that a lot of them start out picky eaters and then the things that we didn't like as kids you know the strong flavors like olives and things that are bitter and things that are tart and you know, things that have a lot of flavor are the things that then we go totally bonkers for once we (laughs) realize they're out there and they become these acquired tastes. So that's actually a trend, I think, around the Food52 office. That is really interesting. I feel like there could be an entire study done on that. Have you seen that yourself, or does that resonate with your experience Mm -hmm. at all? Not really, because I've never really been a picky eater.
1: Like, my brother was the picky eater, and I was the one who kind of ate everything. And also, for that reason, I feel... I'm just going to go ahead and admit it. This is a truthful moment. Kind of judgmental of picky eaters, especially like as adults. I'm like, oh, come on, right? <laughs> <laughs> because But I've never been a picky eater. So I have trouble relating and I, I just enjoy food so much and so many kinds of food. So since you have the picky eating past, are you a little more compassionate than I am towards people who are picky eaters?
2: Um, It's
1: complicated. Are you, or are you like, come on, just try it?
2: I certainly want to be that way, and I certainly want to kind of force my opinions on people about what they'll like and not like. But at the same time, I know that when that happened to me as a kid, that was the surest thing to make me hate something when there was pressure and stress around it. So as much as I want to influence people's minds, (laughs) I know that probably the best way to do it is just have them see me and i guess i'm talking more about children now but maybe adults too like make the good food show them that it's available and i'm enjoying it and other Mm -hmm. people are enjoying it and let them come to it yeah
1: i think it applies to both children and adults who are picky eaters like hey look how cool and delicious this is (laughs) don't you want to try it too i'm having
2: so much fun eating these fava beans (laughs) (laughs) fava bean party
1: Okay, so you go to NYU. Do you feel like that was super necessary in what you did? Because then you interned at all kinds of places, restaurant, business, magazine, and <laughs> sever magazine, and, and you got all these internships. Do you think, was it pivotal that you a- attended a, a master's program about this?
2: It's... It's really hard to say because obviously for me, it certainly was. It was a part of your path. Yeah. yeah. it. There's no way that I would have necessarily followed this path and gotten the experience that I did and made my way to Food 52 if I hadn't taken that particular path. But also, I just didn't know what else to do. In retrospect, I realized there are other ways to you know, meet people, um, ask for informational interviews, you know. Join groups, volunteer, go to events. There's ways to get involved and, you know, start a blog. Yeah. Start an Instagram account, start a project. There are so many ways that you have more agency than you think you do to get involved. So I say it was important for me, but with a caveat that that is certainly not the only way to do it.
1: Yeah, and the fact that the industry itself has changed quite a bit since you first entered it. I mean, completely.
2: There are so many more opportunities now. Absolutely, it's it's been very democratized, which is fantastic.
1: Yes, agreed. Okay, so Food Fifty Two. Correct me if I'm wrong. You were their first ever like hire slash
2: helper. I would. I was definitely their first hire. Okay. Um, I think they had. I joined about three months after they launched. So they, I think, had someone who was the me of the first three months, okay. and then I joined, and then just last on. <laughs> I mean, three
1: months in to Food 52, that's like basically still in utero for this startup.
2: Yeah, it was definitely still in the early stage where we had no office. We worked out of Amanda's apartment once a week for our photo shoots. And the rest of the time, we just kind of scattered and worked at coffee shops or at home or whatever, because we just really didn't have a headquarters.
1: So now it might be a good time to Introduce the two founders of Of Food52, Amanda Hesser and Meryl Stubbs, two super baller women. How did you meet them?
2: You know, I was familiar with their work, and I had heard inklings of them launching this thing, Food52, and was very intrigued. But the way that I initially got in contact with them was someone that I went to school with named Lauren Shockey, um, who's had a really interesting, amazing career herself as a food writer, She had worked with Amanda at the New York Times, and so when Amanda and Merrill were looking for somebody who had cooking experience and editorial experience to help them start this thing um, and really keep it afloat in the early years, um, I was someone that that Lauren introduced them to, and it was the perfect time because this was fall of 2009. I was graduating from grad school. Gourmet Magazine had just folded. Oh, yeah. The same month that Food 52 launched was when Gourmet folded.
1: That is insane and also so representative of the shifting industry. Yeah. It's just like the timing was really ripe for Food 52 to enter the space. I mean, as sad, as tragic as it is that Gourmet folded. it It is just a sign of the times, right?
2: Right. Amanda and Merrill really saw what was coming and got ahead of it and had a vision for what could be in this space that really hadn't existed before
1: and you know neither of them were like silicon valley like techie people they they met writing the new york times cookbook right so This is like as, you know, writing a cookbook is as opposite of techie as you kind of get. So do you know what was the impetus?
2: Amanda did have a bit of a tech background, too, at the same time that she was working for the New York Times for... I think 10 years she was also kind of starting these other startups and she was getting really into Twitter in the early days oh, so I didn't realize. Yeah. So she had a little bit of that brewing already which I think set her up and and her and Merrill up really well for when it was time to launch Food52. They had it's not that they had never done it before. Yeah. But yeah, it's true. They met working on this massive tome uh, the New York t- the Essential New York Times the cookbook. Essential New York Times yes, that's Yes. The big red one. Yes. Um and Part of the impetus for Food 52 was that in testing something like, I think it was 1,800 recipes for that book, they realized that some of the longest running and most popular recipes that were recommended to them by the readers of the times were from home cooks. And so they started brewing on this idea of reader-submitted, audience-submitted recipes. And they also were looking at what was going on on the internet at the time, which was this explosion of food blogs, but also you know, a lot of really top-down editorial websites and there was really nothing connecting the two and nothing kind of, there was no like a central hub for these food bloggers. They saw the void that needed to be filled. Yeah, because most other brands were doing, you know, just kind of an extension of what they were doing in their magazines.
1: So what is your role as creative director? Because, correct me if I'm wrong, but the genius recipes is almost like an aside that you just do because you're really good at it and you <laughs> like it, I'm assuming, right? But, but is that a part? Is is Does that like fall under the umbrella of creative director?
2: Interesting you bring that up because, you know, I've sort of been doing the Genius Recipes thing as, as a side hustle, like for, as part of the brand. For a long time. Yes, for about uh, seven years, like uh, about a year shy of when I started here. Yeah, so it, like when since launched. way
1: before you were Creative director. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So I was, you know, working with Amanda and Meryl, building up the editorial team, um, you know, really helping them, like, oversee the whole brand for years. And then Genius Recipes was the column I was doing on the side, did the book. Flash forward... Genius Recipes, the book, is complete. It's off to the printer. I'm. It's about to come out in three months. Amanda and Merrill are like, you look tired. You should take a sabbatical. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so I took this sabbatical, and when I came back, we had moved into a whole new office. I mean, three months is a long time in startup world. A lot can change. Yeah. So we had this, you know... We just gotten a new round of funding. We had this new beautiful office. We had tons of new hires and like new teams developing um, to support the company. And it seemed like a really good moment to move away from editorial and into creative direction so that all of these new teams, marketing and ad sales, and these teams that were growing and getting to know our brand had a touch point besides just Amanda and Merrill to say, is this on brand for us? Is this something we would do? Is this something our audience would care about? You know. Is this something that kind of fits in with our general voice and aesthetic for the site? So so kind of a gatekeeper in a way? Yeah, kind of like a friendly, encouraging gatekeeper, yes. but occasionally needs to put their foot down a little bit. But yeah, yeah. so that was the moment that I kind of shifted into more brand voice kind of stuff to help Amanda and Merrill not have to oversee all of it so they could do other things. But then very recently, um, The Genius brand has been kind of chugging along and doing all these other things. There's a newsletter now. There are videos. um, There are random kind of extensions off of this book. So it seemed like a good moment to actually shift and really focus on the Genius stuff completely. Um, And also, it's a great moment at the company. The company's continued to grow. We have now a VP of content, um, Suzanne, who is overseeing not just the editorial team, but all of our content. And they are between the editorial team and the creative team, really, like, they get our brand. They push it and evolve it in new directions. They're doing amazing things. So I don't need to be the friendly gatekeeper anymore. They've got this. That must be kind of a weight off your shoulders. It's Do you feel, or <laughs> bitter sweet because, you know, yeah. I like to feel important. Yeah. <laughs> don't we all? <laughs> but, no, but, I mean, I, I love it. And, like, the whole reason I've loved being at Food52 all this time is because, it's never the same thing year to year. It's mm-hmm. constantly growing. I get to learn new things constantly. So this is kind of the new evolution of, you know, I've kind of looked at creative direction for the whole brand. Now I'm looking at it just for genius stuff. So that's the long story of of how genius kind of fit in with my... Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, it is quite an evolution. And... In describing your evolution and the way the genius is woven in there, you also just kind of describe the evolution of the company, mm-hmm. right? So your path is so, I mean, reflective of the way that the company has moved and changed.
2: They're very intertwined.
1: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which is evident. Do you remember when we first met each other? Yes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> what was that? If I'm not mistaken, I wish I remembered the actual recipes that were happening, but, oh wait, I do. <laughs> <laughs> or at least one of them. Um, you were working for the Today Show, and you came to Amanda's apartment when we, it was still those days. Right,
1: when that was so, so the was office, quote unquote. Way back
2: when. Yeah. And you filmed a segment for, I think, Today.com, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Of Amanda and Meryl making a... Thanksgiving Osobuko.
1: yes oh my god your memory is incredible oh my god after how many recipes well, you did used? you
2: remember that too
1: I did remember that oh. I did remember that it was special <laughs> it was special it was special I felt walking into a room with you three that there is something kind of magical happening here among you three I immediately became a fan. I was like, anything these three do, I'm going to love. <laughs> because it was, you could tell it was going to be awesome. Yeah, so that was a long time ago in yeah. in both of our careers. What's it been like working so closely with Amanda and Meryl? It's
2: been really, really great. It's been, I mean, I kind of knew when I was coming aboard Food 52, the Good Ship Food 52, (laughs) um, that I really liked these people. And um, not just what they were doing, because I love home cooking. And so the mission was very clear to me that, you know, I preferred it to talking about restaurants or some other aspects of of food. But just watching early videos of them, I was like, these guys are funny. Mm -hmm. They're they don't take themselves too seriously. Yes. They're really smart, but they're also very silly. I just wanted to hang out with them. And so it made it very easy. You know, once I got in, I wasn't going anywhere. Right. Like, I really liked them. I liked their mission. Um, checking I all was, the boxes. All the weird stuff they've wanted to do over the years, I've been... You were on board s- with yep. the weirdness. Yep. 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 <laughs>
1: Do you consider them mentors or are you like so close with them that 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 is a word that doesn't even apply?
2: Oh, it totally applies. Yeah. I mean, everything I've learned about writing and about food and about building a business and like everything that has happened in my career for the last eight years has been... Pretty directly from them and the world they've created they have created a galaxy yeah. haven't they yeah <laughs> do you have
1: a favorite recipe from your new cookbook I'm sure when you go oh, on tour so you're gonna get asked this question all the time so I'll be the I'll be the first to, am I the first have no you've probably yes, been asked this absolutely okay okay
2: it's oh my gosh um you know it's funny there's the ones there's the genius recipes that I've made the most often just because you memorize them and they just be and, and if you make them week in week out you just make them all the time like Barbara Kafka's Roast Chicken, um, Roberto Santibanez's gu- Guacamole. Those are like the ones that I could make in my sleep at this point. But then there are the ones that have um, just such a great story that they become my favorite just like because of the surprise and the like being able to talk about them. Yeah, like almost your favorite
1: experience. Yeah,
2: yeah. And you know, they also taste great, so that helps. But yeah, that's a perk. <laughs> so, okay, I would say that maybe my favorite discovery from this book was Martella Hazan's Crocante. Yeah, I saw that. Did you see that. that one? Yeah. It's this um, really simple two ingredient, really dark, bittersweet brittle. It's just sugar that is cooked into a super super dark caramel until it's very hard crack, but you don't need a candy thermometer because it's just so beyond the point of needing to hit a specific <laughs> like ball or crack or whatever. Um you just cook it until it's basically smoking wow. dark the color you want and then you stir in um just chopped almonds and then you pour it out and while it's still bubbling instead of smoothing it with like an offset spatula or you know kind of normal kitchen tool You need to have half a potato. (laughs) So I guess it's technically three ingredients, but the third one doesn't really go into the brittle. Um, But I tried this, and, you know, at first I was just like, this is so crazy, I love her. Like, what a cool trick. But then I actually tried it, and... I compared using a spatula to smooth it, like even an oiled spatula, and the potato, and the potato just perfectly smooths it out like glass. What? Yeah. It's something about it is just like slippery enough that it, and also I think, you know, if it's big enough, it's protecting your hand really nicely because mm-hmm. it's still bubbling hot. Um, but it's the exactly perfect tool for the job. Wow.
1: <laughs> I love this so much. I love the quirky element to mm-hmm. it too. Mm-hmm. So
2: my question for you,
1: Kristen, is how do you keep it quirky?
2: Well, with Amanda and Merrill as models, certainly it's not hard. You know, and, and with them kind of setting the tone of what's appropriate and not appropriate at the company, like it is very okay to just mess up and laugh at yourself. You know that's a that's such a gift,
1: by the way. Can I say
2: like in a work environment, that is a real gift. Yeah. I mean it certainly has been one of the reasons that it's been very easy to stay as long as I have. It's it's you know, it doesn't take much to have us all kind of cracking up at a, at, you know, an all company meeting. And in the early days, like they just, they didn't take themselves too seriously. They were down to do silly things in videos. They, they weren't trying to be too proper about anything. And that has totally trickled down in the way that the site is the way that we, you know, are able to communicate back and forth with our audience, the way that our company operates I don't know. I, a good example of keeping it quirky is that is there's just there are so many. Um,
1: <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> but
2: also, I mean, it's you know the internet can also be kind of a a tough place sometimes. Yes. You know, inevitably, even though we have a really strong community and a lot of people who are very excited to be here and help each other, you know, you get random passersby who are not that nice. Yeah, they're and just
1: gonna throw something
2: negative in the pod. Yeah, you have to you have to be ready for that too, and. I think it's also it's easy to take that on to like make that an outsized thing that happens in your brain as opposed to, um, you know, all the positive things that are happening don't take up as much space and you've got to make them take up more space and you've got to really shrink down anyone who is, you know, saying something negative. Yeah, like to, to have the perspective on mm-hmm. it that is true, mm-hmm. but our
1: brains like to put the proportions out of whack. Totally. So so, how do you keep that? So you just try and remind yourself to, to keep those proportions in yeah, check? Yeah,
2: and just, I mean, of course, sometimes negative feedback is a great thing and you can learn something from it. But, like, try to keep it at that level and not let something where someone's clearly just having a bad day and taking it out on you <laughs> blow up in your head. And, you know, sometimes even taking somebody who has – just lashed out and just kind of like laughing about it. Like there was someone in the early days when we used to publish on some bigger platforms who just really did not know food 52. They were much more negative. You know, it was in that the days of like distribution to big places like AOL and HuffPost and, and yahoo and places like that and so we would get some haters and so there was someone who called me a dilly brain broad What? and i thought that was just hilarious (laughs) that's kind of like that
1: is a really hilarious way to describe someone a dilly brain broad yeah
2: and i just instead of being miffed by it I've just kind of taken it on as a, as a badge of honor like okay if he wants to call me a dilly brain bra, that's fine I'm just gonna keep doing my thing that's
1: amazing <laughs> that is so good um, and I love I love how you keep it quirky you keep it quirky with the best of them <laughs> Kristen thank you so much for being on the podcast thank you so much for having me and uh, everyone go out and get yourself some genius dessert <laughs> bye Kristen bye thank you so much Katie in the introduction to Kristen's book, Genius Desserts, Amanda and Merrill wrote the intro. And in it, they note that among Kristen's many positive attributes, a lack of pretension is one of them, as I bet you could tell just by listening to her. And I also find that really refreshing about Kristen in this hyper foodie age that we live in. Amanda and Merrill write that she has the ability to discern greatness in a sea of good. And it really is true. So pick up a copy of her book and enjoy the kitchen times to come. Thanks again to Malai Ice Cream out of Brooklyn for sponsoring this episode, they have amazing, really fun flavors like rose with cinnamon roasted almonds, masala chai, and mango and cream. Malai Ice Cream is a South Asian-inspired spice-forward ice cream company in New York City that's building out its first brick-and-mortar store in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn. They have a pop-up store open now, so stop by Monday through Friday, 5.30 to 9.30 and Saturday and Sunday, noon to 10 to grab a scoop. Mention this podcast and get 10% off your order. The Malai Pop-Up is at 268 Smith Street in Cobble Hill and it'll be going on through the rest of 2018. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at Malai underscore ice cream. M-A-L-A-I. Many thanks to my brother Brian Quinn as always for this theme song. I'll see y'all next week and until then, don't forget to keep it quirky.